Hey, welcome back to the Barrel Proof Baseball Podcast. Today, I've got two very great guests that I'm really excited to. Uh, I'm excited to get this video posted. I've been sitting on it for a little while, uh, you know, middle of season right now. So sometimes the time it takes to edit, uh, we had a move, we've had you know a lot going on. We got a new dog. Um, so just the time it takes to get this thing edited, get them out there. You know, obviously I'm a little bit behind and I suck for that, but uh, hopefully people check these out and they're still enjoying them. Um, I guess more baseball conversations coming up in the near future. However, being that I am entrenched in baseball at the moment, um, it's really nice to be able to have some conversations about whiskey. And so I've really been pushing more whiskey conversations. So hope you understand. Um, today's guests, I have Laurelyn Doty and Alan Bishop from Spirits of French Lick. Now, I had actually heard of Spirits of French Lick because I was listening to um, Steve Akeley on the ABV network, and they do a phenomenal job. I mean, I you know go on walks and listen to those guys, and they're just phenomenal. Jeremy, Renee, like those, they're awesome. Um, I say it like I know them, I don't, uh, but they're rad. I really like listening to them, and they always mention Spirits of French Lick and Alan Bishop. And so I looked into them. I thought they looked kind of cool, reached out, and they sent me, you know, five, six little uh, sample bottles of some different whiskeys, um, a couple of bourbons, a couple of absinths, an apple brandy, um, and really excited to try these out. So I was stoked when I, when I got to sit down and have a conversation with them. And when I talked with them, I had a full beard, not just a sweet mustache. Uh, we were living in our old house. So finally got things settled in and now I get to post this uh, in our conversation we try all these different samples that they had sent me and I loved all of them however one of them stood out and then we talk about it in the episode and this is the Maddie Gladden it's their high rye bourbon um, this is incredible I've had a lot of bottles sent to me had a lot of samples sent to me I will say of the samples that I've been sent the Maddie Gladden has been my favorite. Um, I've definitely had some bottles sent to me that I've absolutely loved. Um, they sent me a sample of this Maddie Gladden. When I tried it, I ordered it you know, within a couple of days after our conversation. Absolutely love this stuff. This is not a major brand that I think a lot of people are going to hear about, um, especially not if you're not in the area, you know, if you're not out in that region, you're probably not going to hear a lot about spirits of French Lake. You're not going to find it on the shelves. Um, it's available on Sealbox, uh, but I think this is one of those brands that as you look into, you realize that there's a lot of great whiskey out there. There's a lot of great brands out there, and there's some really great people that are involved in the making of these really good whiskey. So this was an hour and a half long conversation. Um, I, this, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Like I will say, I do believe that Alan Bishop may be one of the most interesting men in the world. Um, I want to party with that guy. He is rad. Um, so smart, so passionate about whiskey. Um, I feel like the guy could tell stories. Um, he, he just, he knows his stuff and, um, he's going to rock out to some new age music and I think he's going to probably have a good time. So, um, I had a great time talking with Alan. Uh, Laurelyn was awesome. She was so, so helpful. Um, super knowledgeable. Her family is deeply involved in this in this brand i mean go to their website and you're going to see the the last name Doty uh, all over the website it's a it's a family 
uh, a, lot, a lot of family involvement and um, she was just super sweet and I was really excited to have both of them on. So um, check this episode out. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Um, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of knowledge getting thrown out there. And in addition to that, they make awesome whiskey. So um, check this out. Check out their website. See if you can get to Sealbox and order some of their whiskeys. Um, they've got some absinthe, which I was freaked out to try just because of watching Euro Trip and the little green flying goblin guy or fairy or whatever it was. Um, but it was really good. It's my first time with absinthe. Um, even though when I was in Prague, I was right next to an absinthe place and I, I was too scared to try it out. So I was glad I tried it this time. It was incredible. Um, really, really excited about this one. Really excited to hopefully get some more of some, um, bottles of spirits of French lick in my cabinet because it's, uh, it's just terrific stuff. So check us out, leave some comments below. Let me know if you guys have had any spirits of French lick. If you've not, uh, I recommend it highly. So, uh, check the links below, click on the Patreon. If you want to help out, if you want to help support the channel, click on there's bottomless coffee, walk-offs and whiskey um what else was there something else on there amazon store but check those things out if you want to help support if not uh go buy some of these whiskeys there's some great people involved they're making really good stuff go support some some craft distilleries so that's all i got check this out enjoy cheers All right, we're here with Laurel and Doty and Alan Bishop from the Spirits of French Lick. Guys, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Yeah, no Glad problem. To be here. Glad um, to all be right, here. tell me well, now that you're you're full from your black bean burger. Um, we have plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> so, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about yourselves, if you wouldn't mind, maybe outside of whiskey or pre whiskey uh, or pre spirits in general. Uh, yeah, Laurel, you can start with you. Sure. Uh, well, I, um, I grew up in Southern Indiana. I'm from Chicago originally, but grew up in Southern Indiana. And um, the, I, I grew up in a kind of Baptist household. My, my parents gave housing to missionaries. And um, so it's kind of a, an interesting transition for me from, from that to what I'm doing now, which is I, uh, I met Nick out of college. He's one of the owners of the French Lake Winery. Um, and distillery. And um, I spent several years right after we got married being a stay-at-home mom and uh, raising our three kids, um, it, getting them into school anyway. And then um, as his parents started stepping down from the, the business and kind of retiring, I came on board to help him run the business. So I am so new to all of this, spirits, wine. Um, I've really only been, you know, kind of in it for like the last couple of years but um it's fascinating and i'm i'm really enjoying it nice but uh but yeah alan she how enjoys it and she enjoys it until i come to her and i'm like uh there might be an issue <laughs> oh man I, <laughs> it's like the words that you're frightened to hear <laughs> right i'm i'm always nervous to call him back if i if i missed his call because i'm like what what did i yeah. do what did i not do what's going mm -hmm. wrong up there <laughs> What do I need Alan's, to fix? Alan's calling at either 9.30 at night or 7.30 in the morning. Nothing good can come from this. Right, neither, exactly. Neither way, it's a good thing. It's not a good call. Either, either that, either it's something, you know, I need to fix, or it's really good news, like, you know, 
the Lee Sinclair won double gold at the Denver International Spirits Competition. You know, it's one of one of those two things. Yeah, that's a good call. I'm gonna I'm gonna wear that medal like Flavor Flav in his clock for like a week, just around I think, the building. I think anytime you go on like a podcast or a call or anything like that, you should definitely have that on. Oh yeah, for sure. There's Absolutely. no reason not to. I, yeah. I agree. I agree. Uh, so my background is kind of like equal and opposite to Laurelin and that I grew up in a, um, a five gallon Baptist household. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but that's an old Southern, uh, mm-hmm. uh, thing, which means that basically you can drink and do whatever you want Monday through Saturday, as uh-huh. long as your ass is in church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yep. um, yeah, I grew up in a, a family of tobacco farmers and distillers, mostly primarily from Kentucky, but uh, via Indiana for the past couple generations, Southern Indiana, as we call it, who's occupied Northern Kentucky. Um, and so I, I was always around distilling and spirits. And I guess, I guess I never really realized that it was weird to like, <laughs> to be around illicit distillation until I was probably like, 13 or 14 because it was just another thing that we did on the farm to pay taxes or you know pay for Christmas or whatever and I don't know how like my parents never got in trouble because I'm sure that I had to like mouth people before like oh we make whiskey you know when I was a kid because it sounded cool um but uh my my original primary love in life was um agriculture mostly i wouldn't call it certified organic but we called it ecologically grown so when i was uh in my mid-20s i converted the old tobacco farm into an organic agriculture farm and then prior to that when i was about 15 i I got tangentially interested in distilling for the obvious reasons a teenager would be interested in distilling and uh, no judgment against my family my dad and my grandfather in particular but i think they always had the the thing in their head that like He's going to go out in the world and find stuff anyways if he's going to find it he might as well find it here where we can watch him and make mm-hmm. sure he doesn't do anything stupid uh so started distilling of my own accord when i was 15 on a little 10 gallon pot still that they helped me build um it's actually built out of an old uh 10 gallon uh coffee dispenser from fort knox of all places stainless wow. steel coffee dispenser so um sitting in the uh the john hay museum up in salem indiana now um Anyways, so when I got in my mid-20s, I was playing around with organic agriculture, and then agriculture and distillation are one and the same for me in a lot of ways. Distillation is just a continuation of agriculture. It's a way to, to, to you know, value added is a, a popular term in farmers' markets. For once, it's not me with the dog. That's amazing. I mean, unbelievable. Right. I had, I had it on mute, too. I thought I heard something, so I put it on mute, and now my, my dog's, you know, barking up a storm. It's a little known skill that I have that I can actually uh, translate dog. And what happened was the dog heard me talking and was like, this guy, yeah, bullshit. Just she, <laughs> he got all excited Dogs about know. it. Just they, they know. Had to call right. you out for it. Yep. Yep. So uh, uh, long story short, uh, prior to legal distilling, um, I was trying to make a living off of plant breeding as much as anything else or, or selling produce on top of that. And uh, at that time in the Ohio Valley, nobody cared you know you could go to the farmer's market every weekend have you know what i would call value added food as far as you know high anthocyanin tomatoes sweet corn you know high carotenoid sweet corn 
um, everybody and their brother here grows a garden or did grow a garden and uh, you'd show up and think you're the first one in the market with something and somebody would show up with a, a trunk full of whatever you were trying to sell and give it away for free. So, um, you know, at some point it just becomes a little too dangerous to sell things illicitly. And uh, my wife sort of pushed me and said, you either, my now wife at the time, girlfriend, you either get a job doing this legally or, uh, you know, I'm out. So, yep. I've always, I'm always kind of interested because it seems like, you know, either people who start, you know, their own distilleries or, you know, like you said, you're doing this your whole life. And how do you take that jump from doing something that you're enjoying to going, Hey, I can make a career out of this. Like, how do you decide that this is something I can really do? I can dive into this and just like do, do it really well. How did, how does that happen? Well, it wasn't a jump. It was a push. Ah. <laughs> That's what it was. It was, um, and, and not that I wasn't interested in getting a job distilling legally, but in Indiana at the time. Uh, so I started out at another distillery in Louisville, Kentucky for a couple of years before I got over here on, on the wrong side of the river, quote unquote, oh. the North bank of the river. Um, the, really the push was not just her, but also like, you know, I mean, you can get away with something for a long time if you're real careful about it, mm -hmm. right? And if you grow up in a small town, you know everybody, you've been on the fire department, your dad's been on the fire department, your grandpa's been on the fire department, you know all the cops. But eventually, you can get a little too big for your uh, your britches, so to speak. So we had a, um, at one point in time, 150-gallon pot still in the backyard, and uh, everybody knew we had it, but we would go to parties, and jars would come back around to me and of course this was like right at the time that moonshiners was hitting big on tv and all that goofy oh. shit too so jars would come back to me and people that i didn't know who shouldn't know that i made it were asking me to sign jars and so at some point you have to rationalize like you know you only really have one marketable skill in life mm -hmm. uh and so it's either this or dig ditches so it's probably time to try to find something legally doing this yeah <laughs> Not, not keep running around and uh having jars right. random jars heading your way right it's not gonna it's not gonna last forever you know and, sure. and, and i mean it's it's a relatively you know not to encourage home distillation but it's a and i'll always advocate for legalization of home distillation but it's not it's not a particularly heavy charge within the state of indiana but it's enough that people will notice yeah you know sure kind of push them away from wanting to do it too much right right how Laurelyn, when I was looking on the website, I noticed that the Doty name seems to be all over the place. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of Doty family members. I'm assuming. How is yes. that? What is the like? Who started it? Um, you know, who's the who's the? Uh, we'll say who's in charge more, more or less. Like, how does that line yeah. go? Yeah. So um, John and Kim, uh, my husband's parents, um, started the winery back in 1994, and it was actually all four of them. It was John, Kim, Nick, my husband, and his older brother, Aaron. And um, I think Nick was 14 at the time, maybe. Um, and he, he's, he started out as the winemaker, um, mm -hmm. making wine with John. And then um, he's really just done that the whole time. He's the head winemaker now. He has for a while. And um, so let's see. So they started the winery in 94. That grew pretty quickly. Um, I think they did 500 gallons of wine their first year. And then last year, the year before last, we did um, 64,000 gallons of wine. Wow. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's grown quite a bit. Um, sweet wine is mostly what's distributed. We do some dry wines out of our vineyard that are 
tasting room only because we have a really small vineyard, you know, not really big enough to distribute the wine that comes out of there. Um, but, but we do sweet wine. We've got, a, I think, 11 or 12 of them, I want to say. It's really bad that I don't know that number right off. But, <laughs> um, and um, so we're pretty widely distributed throughout Indiana and then into Kentucky. And we just got the wine into Mississippi as well. And in 2016 was when um, John decided, well, year, a couple of years before that, he, you know, he did some research and stuff, but he came to us um, as the family and, and started talking about wanting to expand the business. Um, and, and he was trying to decide between a brewery or a distillery. And so, you know, he did a bunch of market research, sent Nick around to some conferences and stuff. And um, he eventually settled on, on distilling. That was just something that that was the direction he ended up wanting to go with it and um so yeah that was 2016 was when we started the distillery and it was i mean alan can talk to you about the products that we started with but it was mostly uh, white spirits and um you know stuff we could get out right away pretty much mm. um but the the goal was always to to age to lay stuff down to to age and eventually come out with um older products and that was what we were able to do last year with our bottled and bond release um which was which was pretty cool but yeah the dodies are um are the owners and um, the ones who started the business okay where's where's the vineyard at it's about 45 minutes away from the winery in uh martin county right oh, cool. martin county yeah um yeah. right outside of lagodi and um, it's just kind of way, way, way out in the country. So we don't, you know, we don't do tours or anything out there. Um, it's, but it's on Kim Doty's uh, family farm. And uh, we also grow some of our own grains out there as well. We've got uh, wheat and um, corn. We kind of alternate growing up. Um, Very cool. But, and I think, yeah, just a few varietals right now. We've had a lot of trouble with the vineyard. Actually, the last few years, we had some drift from a local farmland come over and um you know pesticide drift kind of knocked out um a bunch of the grape and uh and then it's just been it's been kind of, it's been kind of a struggle to to keep those going is that i mean not to switch it completely to wine but it is interesting like is that is it common is our vineyards common out there it seems like there's a huge fluctuation in weather that would be difficult for grapes like versus you know california mm -hmm. or something yeah, uh, you know, there when when they first started the winery, there weren't a bunch of wineries in the state, and now there are, oh gosh, um, several hundred, I think. Yeah, yeah really. There's, there's a yeah, there's a bunch. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that. I, I don't know how many of them have vineyards, but several of the ones that, well, all of the ones were on the Indiana Uplands Wine Trail with, um, which mm -hmm. is nine wineries total. They all have mm -hmm. vineyards, and um, two of them. Huber's and Oliver's have quite substantial vineyards. Okay. Um, Interestingly enough, too, and this ties back into distilling uh, in the conversation as well, but Indiana was actually the, the home state of the first successful commercial winery in the United States. Really? Um, yeah. So the, uh, the, the up in Switzerland County in uh, Vive, Indiana, Vivi, however you want to pronounce it, um, <laughs> That was actually a Swiss colony that came through Kentucky and into Indiana to start a commercial winery, and uh, they were incredibly successful before anywhere on the East Coast ever was. 
Um, so Indiana definitely has a, a, a history of winemaking oh. that just got lost with prohibition. Mm-hmm. That's nuts. It seems like it's everywhere. I, I had no idea it was that big out there. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And I, you know, you might know more about the, um, do you know about the AVA, Alan? Can you explain that at all? Oh, the viticultural areas? Yeah, Uh, because that's a relatively new designation, isn't it, for us? Uh, Yeah, it's not, it's not too terribly awful, but the idea is that that you're, you're getting designations based on um, geology as well as geographic location. Um, And so we're, we're part of the Indiana Uplands, um, which is sort of marked by uh, a more temperate climate than most of the rest of the state, as well as sandstone and limestone in the soil, um, which brings some interesting characteristics to the forefront. Um, mm. I believe, I believe, I may be wrong here, Laurel, and you can, you can, you can correct this if I am. I believe Tramonette is our state grape, which is actually, yes. ironically, that's, that was originally a brandy grape. Really? Oh, interesting. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we make a, we make a nice um, semi-sweet uh, white wine out of the Tramonette. And um, yeah, all of the all of the wineries on the Uplands Trail have their own um, kind of take on Tramonette. I mean, they're all you know fairly similar, but mm. um, but yeah. So so you guys started. I'm assuming most people, most distilleries, start with clear spirits so they can turn them around quicker versus laying down their own whiskey and getting that out, or versus you know sourcing it from somewhere. Um, is that kind of the route you guys went? It's kind of a, a, a twofold thing. And Indiana is a unique state because Indiana has this huge, long, super in-depth history of distilling going back to at least as early as 1806, mm-hmm. um, if not a little earlier, but 1806 is the first provable distiller in, in Indiana, Southern Indiana anyways. Um, so you kind of get it, you kind of see what happens is that, that as the history goes forward and Indiana becomes a very successful commercial distilling state, uh, as a matter of fact, for decades, literally Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky were all vying for the top distilling state in the United States. Um, and it's amazing nowadays to people that Indiana was ever even part of that conversation. Unfortunately for us in Southern Indiana, the temperance movement was massive. It was very closely associated with the, uh, the Knights of the Golden Circle, which later became the KKK. Um, those guys were firm believers in temperance and firm believers that alcohol was destroying the quote unquote white culture for whatever that's worth or whatever that means. So for a long time after right. prohibition, it was very hard, uh, to, to get Indiana talked into, as far as the legislature went, talked into, you know, letting us distill. And so when the conversation finally started getting serious around 2013, 2014, it was very much around this idea of farm distilleries, the idea that, you know, distilling is again, agricultural, um, but they were really using it as almost a crutch to back up whatever their morals were at the time. And what I mean by that is they would only allow winemakers and our brewers that had a license active for three years to start a distillery. Uh, the rationale behind that was that those guys had shown that they were responsible with alcohol. Um, despite the fact that I could go buy a liquor license and start a bar or a, uh, you know, a liquor store at the same time. So what they were really saying, it's right. okay to sell everyone else's alcohol, just not your own. Not yours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the first few years of this Indiana farm distilling legislation, there were a lot of changes and they happened very quickly and they happened overnight. So hmm. the easiest route to market is obviously to source things and being in Southern Indiana, MGP is, 
you know, super yeah. obvious. Um, so when I got the call to leave my former job and come over here to the right side of the river uh, and start distilling at French Lick, uh, initially, you know, I knew I wanted to do a bunch of white spirits. You, you have to do a gin. You're not going to not do a gin. There's no way you're not, despite the fact there's 3,000 of them out there on every shelf. You know, I wanted to do some Aquavit, wanted to do some Absinthe, wanted to do, you know, white brandy, whatever. But I also had a really good source at the time. And at the time um, that we started in 2016, April 2016 is when we did our first distillation. Um, the market for bulk product was pretty slim, but I was lucky enough to make a lot of good contacts in the industry. And I was able to come up with some uh, some barrels of bourbon from Wyoming. I can't say what distillery it was from, but there's like two in Wyoming. So it's pretty, pretty easy to figure out. 50, 50. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, and the idea was that we were going to do some blending with other people's stuff and put it out as our own label. And uh, so we bought, I think it was a hundred thousand dollars worth of bourbon. And the day that it actually shipped to us and it came in the door, they had changed the laws in the state of Indiana uh, that had allowed bottling someone else's product uh, to disallowing it to where anything that went into the bottle had to be 60% yours from start to finish, which means that now we're sitting on $100,000 worth of bourbon that we can't do anything with until we have bourbon ourselves. It's at least two years old, which was a, a fun conversation to have with the, uh, the owner at the time. Yeah. Without a doubt, but not much you can do about it. So, I mean, yeah, the goal, the goal was always in a lot of ways. I mean, I think most distillers who are true to their art, they don't want to buy stuff from other people, but it's an easy route to market. Um, but you have to be making white spirit, first of all, to pay for light bill. Second of all, I think, and more importantly, a lot of times, I mean, if you have the money to start a, a, a multi-million dollar distillery, you theoretically should have the money to keep it running for a couple of years before mm -hmm. you have issues. Mm -hmm. So more importantly, I think, you know, with making white spirits, it's, it's really to show people that you are distilling. You're not just and I don't mean this in any negative connotation. You're not just a non-distiller producer that's bottling mm -hmm. stuff, but you are actively distilling. You're actively you're pursuing own. the art. Mm -hmm. So um, we, we, we tried to be 50-50 and it blew up in our face is what happened. Crazy. So, so you, okay, so so then what? So you have $100,000 worth of whiskey sitting there. And do you, do you hold on to that to start blending it in two years once you've yeah. got some straight bourbon? Set on it, cross your fingers, and hope that Aquavita absinthe catches on. That's that was really that was really the business plan for about two years. Um, that was the, the official plan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was never like officially discussed. Like, oh, yeah. this sucks. You know, yeah. but it, it was very much like, oh, well, I guess it is what it is. And and thankfully, the Dodies, you know, with with their business sense, uh, you know, they already had the winery, they already had a restaurant. Um, they didn't start this with nothing, you know, they, sure. they had, they had a backup and, uh, that's, that's lucky in a couple ways, you know, a, because of what happened. And then also B because they may or may not have made the mistake of hiring a purist. So for me, <laughs> you know, my family being originally from Kentucky, me being, you know, first generation, generation Hoosier, uh, I use that word proudly, regardless of what people in, in certain parts of St. Louis think of it, um, I wanted to play into the history of distilling in Southern Indiana. So I wanted everything that we did to be legitimate, double pot distilled, no chill filtration, as close to what comes off the still, as close to what I taste off the still is what you can possibly get. Um, no liqueurs or anything like that. And I was lucky enough that they backed me on that play. Oh. And uh, so the goal was always to treat this place 
it's one of the reasons I came there other than it being in Indiana and being in the right region of Indiana is that when you when you walk in and you see the equipment it has some levity to it there's some firepower there there's something that you can do with it it's it's almost too big to be comfortable and it's too small to be comfortable at the same time if that makes sense so, yeah definitely um, you have the opportunity to really push what a craft distillery can be with that and so in my head from the get-go it was always can we sort of make this the craft distillery equivalent of heaven hill with bottled and bond products can we make this the distillery that even though it's in a uh, an old uh, Kimball piano factory can we make this the distillery that other distillers want to come visit so so what do you so what do you start with what's first is do you go straight to gin is that is that kind of your first thing <laughs> that you get going get going so we were doing the the actually <laughs> it's funny we did aquavit first um and i originally came up with the aquavit thing because i had seen that that was becoming a thing on the east coast and the west coast hmm. and um it just never has had its time yet, but it will. Uh, it was getting there prior to COVID, slowly but surely. Uh, but for anybody who, who's not familiar with Aquavit, it's a Scandinavian spirit that's a very close cousin to gin, but it's um, caraway, coriander, dill, and then a little juniper in the background sometimes. Um, so we hit that first, then we hit absinthe, which I knew we had to do because previously I'd worked at Copper and Kings and had developed all of their absinthe products. So kind of competing with myself i wanted to see if i could make something different do something and, do something better <laughs> right right and, yeah. and and better in my opinion anyways uh vodka was always you know i mean it's easy it's cheap it's distillers don't get crazy excited talking about vodka because to us it uh it had the potential to be good whiskey but you took it too far <laughs> so um yeah, that was that was pretty much. I mean, any it, very much a, a ready fire aim philosophy. So throw everything at the wall, see what sticks, and if something does well, then head in that direction. And we had some some good success early on. We had uh, a lot of attention on that absinthe that won several medals. You know, early on, I think with any distiller competitions are important until about year four or five, people start taking it a little more seriously. Mm. Um, the gin which came after the Aquavit and the Absinthe, ironically, and very reluctantly. Uh, we won double gold at ADI, best of class, best of category. Mm. Um, so it, it definitely got some attention. I don't, I, don't know that it, I don't know that it sold a whole lot, to be honest with you, but certainly it put us in people's minds and on the radar. What is your, um, is there an enjoyment, again, not to say you don't enjoy it, but is there like an enjoyment level that's, that's different with, you know, making whiskey or blending whiskey versus like a gin or a vodka. Like you said, people don't really get excited about vodka. Like, is there, is there with the gin or, or absinthe, is that as enjoyable as whiskey? It is. And, and in some ways for me, it's actually a little more enjoyable because really? I don't, I don't typically, I don't typically enjoy botanical spirits as mm. far as something to set down and drink. So they're a little challenging to me. Um, but I think that's, a, that's also an advantage too, because I don't become terribly overly critical of them and the way I do some of the other things. So as far as distilling goes, they're actually a lot more fun to do. Um, brandies to me are by far the most challenging thing. Um, and it, it's a thing that I really enjoy making more than anything else is brandy. Um, yeah, I mean, I enjoy all of it. I, I like all the art. And, and the more the more odd that something is, the more I think I enjoy it. The more off the beaten path and the more challenging it can be, I think the more I want to do it. Uh, vodka, 
by the U.S. standard, uh, neutral grain spirit essentially is the single most boring thing. It, it is literally <laughs> just 18 hours on a, on, a, on a hybrid pot still of just watching water boil is what it is. It's, uh, it's just um, miserable. There's nothing positive to say. Laurel, what is, what's your drink? What is your go-to that you like in the line that you guys have? Yeah, well, um, I, I really enjoy, uh, I really enjoy a dry red wine. Um, but I have recently in the last year and a half or two years started getting into the spirits and, um, our rum actually was the first one that I, that I got into. I, I tried it. I don't remember why. I think we were at a campfire or something and, um, just we had happened to have a couple of bottles of just some random stuff um and somebody had put it in the fridge and um or it was winter or something I don't know it, it was cold anyway I tried it and I just I just fell in love with it and um I don't I might have gotten into a little trouble that that night drinking a little too much of it but um but it was it was good stuff yeah so um so then that got me interested in in trying rums and um and since then I've gotten more into uh the whiskeys and right now I I'm really enjoying um the Lee Sinclair uh the Iconoclast actually which is mm -hmm. a three barrel blend of um of our Lee Sinclair three barrels that didn't make it into the last bulk um bottling that we did but that one yeah that one's just a nice easy easy drinking so, okay. So I want to, I want to taste these. I want to talk about each of these, but I'm, I'm more curious about the absinthe. And I guess the reason is because I've never had it. Um, okay. I think when I think of absinthe, I think of like seeing the little green guy, like in Euro trip, um, right. two years ago, we were in Prague and we were right across the alley from a, like an absinthe place. And I was scared to death to go in there and try it out. Kind of wish I, I would have tried it, but I never did. I think the green guy freaked me out a little bit, but <laughs> I don't, I don't think we're going to have that, but tell, talk to me a little bit about like absinthe. How do you make it? What is it like? You know, how's it different than other spirits? Yeah. So, so the history of absinthe is incredibly complex if you go back far enough. So it, so it probably originally started off as some sort of tincture or elixir and some raw shape or form, just, uh, uh, you know, raw botanicals into raw spirit, um, from Salerno, Italy, uh, passed down through folk traditions, um, different magic traditions, different herbal traditions into um, uh, Cuvée in Switzerland. Uh, and, and a lot of people think of absinthe as being particularly French, but it's actually the Swiss who created it. Uh, mm -hmm. So in the Swiss Alps, um, it became incredibly popular. Probably 1740s, 1750s is really when people started advertising it. Um, it had always been a little bit of an underground kind of tincture um, based upon different alpine medicinal elements that you had on hand, wormwood, grand wormwood, teat wormwood, um, all sorts of botanicals that, 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 that grow in that region, anise, uh, fennel, um, etc. So is, that is the fennel that like black licorice, uh, yeah, scent so you get? Fennel and anise in particular, both have that, have that kind of black licorice sort of connotation to them. Mm, okay. Um, a star anise does too, and that comes a little later on in the story. Uh, so absinthe by the Belle Epoque has become an incredibly popular drink. It's been adopted in France um, 
in Swiss in the Swiss Alps, they were actually making a, a clear absinthe, which is what we make a Le Bleu style. Uh, Le Bleu referring to the reflection of the sky being colorless, mm. basically. Uh, once it reaches France, it becomes more of a verde style, uh, a green, um, you know, the green fairy, that whole connotation comes about, becomes very popular during the Belle Epoque because what happened was the, uh, the grape crops in France failed due to phylloxera, uh, which was a, a, a root uh, damaging insect or pest that came over from, from the Americas. And in those days in the 1880s, or even before that, um, they basically had the equivalent of happy hour, they, 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 but they did it with wine. And so once the wine gets wiped out, they need a replacement. So absinthe is always originally sold as like extract the absinthe. It's, a, it's an extract. It's meant to be watered down. You're meant to add water to it, loose it, have it turn a little white color. Um, you also typically add sugar to it. And because of that, that makes it a little more on the, on the sweet sort of side. You get what's called a gustatory illusion. Your brain actually senses food as opposed to alcohol when you're drinking absinthe. So it was an easy jump for wine drinkers to go over to absinthe. Um, at the end of that period, once the phylloxera problem was kind of figured out, the wine industry had a very big issue. And that was that absinthe had completely displaced wine drinking in France and most of the rest of the world. And so what the wine industry in France did is they started to villainize absinthe by saying that uh, it would cause you to have hallucinations. And they based this on alpha-thujone, which is in Grand Wormwood, um, which at high enough dosages does cause seizures, but ironically, not hallucinations. Now I can see the uh, green fairy. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so they, they came up, every horror story they could, they could come up with, they did. So they, they found this, this one particular gentleman in, in the Swiss Alps who had drank absinthe and, and killed his family, killed his wife and his kids. And they said that absinthe would make you crazy and it would make you insane. You'd have hallucinations. And, uh, and very late in the absinthe game, there were poor quality imitations of absinthe, essentially, that where they were using things like copper sulfate to, co to color the absinthe, things that would cause legitimate nervous issues. Um, so it's pretty easy to villainize. Uh, and once one domino fell, they all fell. Um, so there were actually absent distillers in the United States. The, uh, the first one that we know of was ironically here in Indiana. Uh, and I'm sure there were some earlier than this, but in 1835, there were two absent distilleries in Switzerland County, ironically back to the Catawba thing. So those people were from Cuvée, Switzerland of all places, the place mm -hmm. where absinthe was born. Um, they were large enough producers. They were shipping product down river, uh, to New Orleans at that time. And uh, I always thought that I would be the first producer of absinthe in Indiana until I found that story. And I was like, well, I only missed that by a hundred and something yep. plus years. Second. Um, yeah, right. So <laughs> what, we wanted, yeah. what we wanted to do is absinthe, unfortunately, has had two bad turns. The first bad turn was the original band. The second bad turn was after some illegitimate absence came on the markets in the early 2000s mostly out of old eastern soviet bloc countries they were colored with artificial coloring um, they were essentially for all intents and purposes neutral grain spirit with some essential oils or additives added to it and so people got this taste of absinthe in the mid-2000s when it still had the mystery in the air around it and they got really turned off to it um, luckily we had some good producers like ted bro of jade liquors uh, who does some excellent stuff if you ever get a hold of it. Um, but the one thing that we've never had in the United States in modern times, as far as absinthe goes, is a true American absinthe movement in the way that we had with gin. 
you know, we threw all the rule books out regarding gin and did our own American version of things, mm. you know, super sized as it were. And so that's what we wanted to do with absinthe. So we basically with the Le Bleu, uh, we, we took a, a neutral grain spirit. We used a combination of recipes from uh, both uh, Cuvée as well as uh, France and blended those different botanicals together and then put our own American spin on it. Uh, a little later on, we actually took that same absinthe and dropped it into a new American oak number two char barrel, the same as what we use for our bourbon. Um, and we did that essentially because I'd never heard of anybody putting absinthe in a new American oak barrel. So absinthe drinkers don't typically drink bourbon. Bourbon drinkers don't typically drink absinthe. And this was the perfect way to kind of bring those two sides. This intro. It's delicious. I, I was, yeah, I was like trying to look at, I was looking at this going like, it's, it looks like I mean, it sounds like a bad way. It could be tequila, for God's sakes. But, you know, like, <laughs> obviously, you're, if you're aging absinthe in a barrel, like you would, you know, whiskey. I mean, it seems mm -hmm. kind of interesting. It is a very, again, Americanized absinthe. Um, I think that probably some of my traditionalist underground absinthe friends would call it a bastardization. But uh, okay. you, can't put, you can't put that on the label because TTB frowns on it. So They don't like that. Uh, yeah. So what we did is we used the name Fascination Street. I'm a huge fan of the Cure. I love new wave music. And uh, that particular Cure song worked out perfect for that. My buddy Mark Williams from Barrel House Distillery did the artwork on the background. Um, I don't know if you can see it there. That's cool. But he laid all that out. And then uh, we did a little Dan Aykroyd tribute. We filtered through uh, Amethyst not for any particular reason other than to say that we we filtered through amethyst and it's kind of like a, <laughs> a nice little mystical absinthe you know smart ass little joke for the inside so um all right so which it's which one of these do i try easy drinking which one do i need to try first do i do i go to the the Le Bleu or do i go to the uh the sinclair oh, no i'm so sorry would... the fascination street so what I would do, and now we're, we're doing this a little bit backwards. So typically yeah. we would taste absinthe at the very end. Um, also, we can switch it. We can go bourbon for sure. Whatever. whatever yeah, yeah, you recommend. yeah. And the people just have to jump around. I would start with bourbon first because that okay. absinthe is going to blow your palate. For okay. Sure. All right. So tell me. You're so, like, why does, why does all your bourbon taste like licorice? What the hell? <laughs> this is really weird. All yeah, right. licorice. Okay, so so I've got the uh, the Maddie Gladden, the bottled and bond, and then the Sinclair uh, bottled and bond, bottled and bond. I would start with the Sinclair in particular. I think that's 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 probably the probably the intro bourbon of okay. all the bourbons we do. So so these are bottled and bond. Are they at four years or past four years? Yeah, so these are a little bit over four years, maybe four years and a couple months in, in a lot of cases. Um, depending on which which of the two bottled and bond Sinclairs you got it could be right at four years or right at like four years and three months so okay um so everything we do is based on history as i've kind of alluded to with all my my geekdom that i have going on here so sinclair was a local businessman originally from green county indiana he came to washington county indiana was the son of a prominent um mercantile mill owner who owned a huge mill up in chicago uh, Sinclair started his own in Washington County, was very successful. That became the uh, owner of the New Albany and Salem State Bank uh, and got interested in the hotel business over at French Lick in West Baden, what's now called Springs Valley. Uh, kind of, um, it's always sort of had this kind of mysticism to it with the groundwater having specific minerals in it that are supposed to be good for you, et cetera. So there's always been sort of a, a hotel resort element to 
this small, strange kind of dark town in Southern Indiana. Mm -hmm. uh, so he, he buys a hotel there that was called the, uh, the, the mile lick in West Baden. He runs it for a couple of years. It burns down. He's going to get out of the business. He's done with it. Uh, the one thing that he loved more than business was his daughter, Lillian Sinclair, who absolutely adored the, uh, the hotel resort business. She talks him into building a new hotel. He is descended from the Sinclairs of Scottish fame. Uh, he's been all over Europe in his life. He's been very closely tied to the Freemasons, et cetera. He has a little bit of occult worldly knowledge, as it were, and he decides that if he's going to do this, he's going to do it right. He's going to, be, he's going to build the world's first fireproof hotel. Um, and on top of that, he's going to build the world's largest freestanding dome, uh, which existed as the world's largest freestanding dome for 70 years until the Superdome was built. It still exists today. Um, and he's going to call it the Carlsbad of America and put in a casino, whether or not the law lets him legally do it or not. Um, he's successful in all those things. And so we're located on Sinclair Street across from the West Baden Dome and the hotel. Um, I'm from the same county as Mr. Sinclair and go to the same county to work is what he did. So made a lot of sense to name something after him. So this is a, a very different mash bill from anything that you're going to find in uh, Kentucky or Indiana. It's a uh, 60% corn, 17 wheat, 13% oats, and 10% caramel malt. Um, so I, actually, this was the first mash bill I came up with of my own accord when I was 15. Um, my dad and my grandpa turned me loose of the still and basically told me not to blow myself up and bring them something that was worth drinking. And uh, I knew all the things that they had taught me. Uh, but, you know, being a 15-year-old rebellious kid, I wanted to try something different. So I knew that oats were a grain. I didn't know they had ever been using the whiskey before, but hell, let's, it's a grain. Let's throw it in there. Let's see what it does. And so threw the oats in and uh, figured out that they add a lot of mouthfeel, a lot mm -hmm. of creaminess to the product in particular, a lot of sweetness. They distill very much like they taste when you cook oats. Uh, and they're very pleasant. They actually give a little bit of a, a brandy-like sort of flavor uh, and mouthfeel to the whiskey in particular. Uh, and then years later, doing some historical research, I found out that oats were incredibly common in Kentucky and Indiana whiskeys, both that oats were actually the number two crop in Indiana and Kentucky all throughout the 1800s. So um, not the not the first one on base there. Oh, I got the base. Why, why is it? I got you. No, I picked that up. <laughs> Why is it not used more often? I mean, this it's is it a is there a price to it that's different than like a you know, malted barley or wheat or something like that? Right. So the, the big issue is that with with oats, they're very hard on column still distillation. So what we focus on is 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 pot still. It's all batches, uh, you know, twelve hundred gallons at a time on the stripping still uh, versus continuous distillation where you can feed two hundred gallons a minute into a continuous column still. Uh, the problem is that the oats will clog up the continuous columns still because they're sticky mm. and they want to hang out together. Um, there have been a few larger distillers uh, that have played with oats in small projects. I think Jim Beam did one a few years ago, uh, but you don't see it often just because it's such a pain in the ass. And then it's also a little bit outside of this, what we think of as modern Kentucky bourbon, right? So sure. we all have this idea of, you know, the six or seven big guys that stuck around after prohibition, after industrialization, and they're making either, you know, a high rye bourbon or a weeded mm -hmm. bourbon or a rye whiskey. And so it's just a little bit off kilter from what people expect of bourbon. Although in the grand scheme of things, especially if you were to go back in time, 1850s, 1860s, you know, that spectrum of what we imagine bourbon to be was a lot wider back then. And I think that's starting to come back around, luckily. 
um, in general. But that that's the main reason you don't see them. They're just a pain in the ass to work with. Does it require more uh, maintenance with the equipment and everything like that? Because how they how they stick and everything. To to some extent, um, yeah. it's not that bad with pot still distillation. Uh, typically, because we have agitation in the still, etc. Um, but what they would run into with the still actually is a little bit dangerous as far as the larger distillers go. Um, cause they would actually be clogging up the feed between the individual plates and building pressure in the still, which is a, a hmm. big, big, big no, no. Um, they can be a little finicky when it comes to moving them out of the fermentation vessel into the still. Uh, it takes a lot of, um, practicing with the water hose and a lot of cursing. To get uh, them to go where you want them to go that helps most things i've found <laughs> yeah yeah that and the ball peen hammer yeah That's, those are the two tricks to life yes they really are they need to be around more often i think um you know it's interesting that for some reason i always find a lot of bourbons like just how they sit in the back of your like the back of your throat like they burn back here like you get that feel back in here at the finish i felt all that up front it was very different Yes, but I yes. really, I really dig the way that, uh, like I said, that mouthfeel is really cool. Really like that one. Yeah, our our motto is respect the grain, and so the idea behind that is that everything we do, we approach from a very brandy maker like uh, uh, pose, I guess. So um, it's very much a matter of blend and balance. So fifty percent raw material fermentation and distillation, fifty percent maturation. So a lot of what you're tasting here is very much so. The idea that there are positive aspects of the grain that you can pull off mm. and then balance those with the barrel so that the barrel doesn't become overwhelming because you know if, if you're going to say for example that that a bourbon has wheat in it right if it's 10 or 12 years old you should still be able to taste those positive aspects of the wheat and a lot of times in commercial bourbons you miss that so this is very much about blending and balancing those two ideas together and trying to hold on to all those positive aspects of the grain and then that creamy mouthful i'm i'm a huge fan of the texture of whiskey. I mean, a whiskey can have a beautiful aroma. It can have a beautiful taste, but if it doesn't have something that just sort of sustains yeah. me while I'm drinking it, it's not worthwhile a lot of times. The, like the super thin ones that just go away really quick. Yes. Yeah. I'm not, not a yeah. fan of that at all. No. Uh, Laurel, which one are you going with? Are you going, are you, do you have the uh, Sinclair? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I've got the, yeah, I've got the Sinclair here. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a good one. I like that one. Yeah. That might, that might, do you, do you, do you uh, well, I was going to get to this later, but do you guys sell online or is that not possible? Yeah, we can't, um, we can't direct ship, uh, spirits. Mm -hmm. We, we can only direct ship our wine oh, and, okay. um, but we, um, we go through seal box for oh. kind of our, our direct shipping. Um, and I, I think a couple of the products that he carries are linked from our website. So you can, oh, you know, cool. click the buy button and it takes you to his website. Okay. All right. That's, I was going to ask that later, but now that, you know, I thought about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. The Maddie Gladden, you got the high rye. So what is this one? Uh, what kind of rye content are we looking at? Yeah. So this is another one of those really kind of alternative mash bills. So mm -hmm. everybody sort of argues on the internet nowadays about what high rye means. So you'll, you'll see people say anything over 20% is high rye. So for us, that's almost like a challenge, like, oh, 20% is high rye, let's go 35. <laughs> so uh, 55 corn, 35 rye, 10 uh, victory malt. We do, and that's something I should have mentioned about Lee Sinclair too. We do use a lot of brewer's malts in particular. 
because brewer's malts have so much more flavor to them than distiller's malts. They're, they're roasted to different degrees. You can pull off caramels and chocolates and all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, so you'll typically see an alternative malt in pretty much everything that we make. Um, so this is a pretty alternative mash bill in general. I do believe that Four Roses has one mash bill that's very close to that uh, in particular, um, but it's not something you're going to see very often with that 35 rye, and it's entirely this is, different. This is really good. Yeah. See, this and that's, is that's really good. That's the fun of this one in particular for me, because when we first started, we came out with a two-year-old Lee Sinclair, which of course mm -hmm. is a modified weeded. And then we did a blended, what we called the weeder, which was two-year R weeded bourbon and seven-year purchased bourbon that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And everybody was like, well, when are you going to do a high ride? And I'm like, don't worry, it's coming. Just give me time to get there. I've got something for you guys too. And so this one's been a lot of fun for me. That one is uh, a lot of spice on there um there's there's a lot there's a, actually ironically a little bit of nice characters there there's a lot of black cherry uh, cocoa too yes definitely like it's definitely. it's and it's weird because like i haven't had very many rise or bourbons for the for that matter that where i get that chocolatey type of flavor and when people yep. say oh there's a dark chocolate to it or milk chocolate whatever like i typically yes. don't pick that up um i don't know why i love dark chocolate but I, I just, I never seem to get that. And I don't know if it's because like, I'm good with a high, you know, cocoa content in a dark chocolate. And so it's like, if it's muted a little bit in the whiskey, I, I don't necessarily get that. Um, mm. But this definitely has it. I kind of dig this a lot. Yeah, I think yeah. it's really cool. And it, it, that one's been one that we've had fun playing with in the past too. We did a, we did a limited release of what we called unpretentious, which was that mash bill for aged for two and a half years in a new oak barrel. And then we aged it for another year in a port barrel. Um, which did really well for us. Um, but that one is, uh, that one gets me in trouble. I'm not allowed to bring that one home anymore because uh, I'm going to miss a day at work if I bring that home. I can, I can, um, I can understand that because I feel like this is, I mean, it's, she seems very nice and you can spend a lot of time together. <laughs> right. Right. She, um, she's quite lovely. She yes. really is. There, there's, there's a, there's an earthy quality to that one that I really like. And yeah. um, I, I know Ellen, Ellen laughs about this, but it reminds me of being out in the woods in the spring. Like, mm. I don't know, just the new earth kind of mm -hmm. smell and the rain and stuff. But yeah, I like that yeah, one a lot. That one, so I haven't been on, I haven't been on a rye kick really until kind of recently. And it was, and I think, I think for me, it was because my very first experience with rye was not very good. I just tried it. And I didn't like it really like the bourbon. And then I, I think it was the specific bottle that I had. Um, I just didn't like it. And then somebody said, well, try, um, Rittenhouse, which was, you know, yeah. like a 51% uh, rye, you know, so it's like barely over that bourbon threshold of yep. becoming a rye. And I was like, okay, I really like that. And then started trying some more higher rise or, or like an actual rye whiskey. And I really like them. I don't know that they have like necessarily the complexity as some of the bourbons do that you're picking up different flavors, but like the good ones, I feel like it is probably more complex than some of the bourbons that are out there. I agree. And I think you're going to yeah. see a lot more come into play with that in the next few years as people play around with different heirloom rye and different mash bills, because up to this point, everything's either been that fairly legal Kentucky rye uh -huh. or it's been MGP at 95%. And there's a lot of play in between. Yeah, lots. So, I mean, it seems like you're... A... Oh, go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, I was yeah. just saying, like, like you said, that, that leads a wide variety of things. And even adding like a fourth grain in there could probably 
I would imagine do a lot for that flavor profile. It does. It does. We've got, we've actually got a, a, a rye whiskey that's based on the old George Washington mash bill. So it's 60% rye that'll be out this fall at five years mm-hmm. old. And then there is another version of Lee Sinclair called Lillian named after his daughter that we just started putting down last year. Um, and so it's the same mash bill, but we switch out the, uh, the wheat for rye and then we switch mm-hmm. out the caramel malt for some honey malt. So that one's going to be, yeah, really that's fun. that, that Maddie Gladden's good. I see why you get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I understand that. Yeah. I like that. Um, so, all right. So we got the two absents and then I got the old Clifty, uh, apple brandy. So got a little bit of everything. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. This, is good, so, this is a good, this is a good, this is a good mix right here. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, uh, uh, for those who are interested in the Maddie Gladden story, which is a hell of a story, you guys can check that out on YouTube via spirits of French Lake. Bo Cumberland did a couple of videos, mm-hmm. uh, long and short of it named after a, uh, owner of a brothel in Salem, Indiana in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, married five times, twice the same man who she also shot in the face. Nice. Uh, so hell of a story. <laughs> if you're going to name a, a bourbon after a woman, make sure it's one that can go toe to toe with any man of the time. For sure. Right. Like an absolute badass, you know? Yeah, exactly. One hundred percent. Yeah. Man. And we're, we're looking at playing off of the baseball thing too. That was something I mentioned. I, I meant to mention earlier. So you may or may not know this, but French lick was actually, um, the training ground for the white Sox. Really? Years and years and years. And then also that. a lot of the, um, uh, the smaller leagues, especially the African-American leagues. Really? French Lick and West Baden was training grounds. So there's a, yeah, I had no oh, idea. Yeah. There's a ton of history um, right right down there uh, next to the uh, the dome and resort. Um, Alan, are you are you naturally a history guy? Because I feel like you're you you've been, you're on top of like dates and names and stuff. And most people that are you know in history can pull up dates and names and stuff and put them together. It's it's I mean yeah. it's fascinating. <laughs> I always tell people that like if you can find a crossroads where history, music distillation and agriculture come together i'd probably be there selling my soul that's that's probably where i'd be at more than likely so it makes sense yeah no that's that's the stuff that i enjoy and that that's a big part of it for me distilling isn't just a it's not just a job it's not just a career there's there's a little uh there's a little heritage and spiritualism that ties into the whole thing as well so yeah i think that's one of the fun parts with bourbons and i mean obviously there's a lot of folklore out there however mm-hmm. when you've got the uh the stories that back up and I, again i don't care if it's you know sinclair or if it's you know elijah craig like there's a story and regardless of uh the it, there's some historical significance there either way you look at it i agree and i think i think two of the biggest mistakes that most most distillers make nowadays is they they either lie about their history or they fudge the truth just enough just and that's the one, <laughs> yeah that's the one thing that we don't do everything that like if you read the back of our labels everything that's on there is something that can be verified we sure. want that to be we want you to identify these products with those people you know yeah. and bring those people back around for everybody so. yeah no that well, makes and, perfect and like you were you mentioned um the other day that talking about Maddie Gladden and putting her on a product has kind of reignited local interest in her as a historical figure, right? Right. Yeah. It's like, uh, sounds geeky, but I'm geeky anyway. So it's, it's almost like a form of necromancy, right? So like 
nobody in New Orleans and North Carolina knew who the hell Lee Sinclair or Maddie Gladden was a year ago, but now they do. Mm-hmm. And now they're saying their names, you know, when it brings them back around in a certain way uh, mm-hmm. and, and makes you look at, we, we have this thing that I, in, in Southern Indiana that I call who's yourself hatred, which is this, this idea that if you're from Indiana, nothing good could ever possibly happen here and nothing good has ever happened here. It's because you don't realize what's actually around you and the heritage that you have. And so I like to play into that to some extent, you know, and, and it doesn't, I guess in, in some ways it could matter less to me whether or not somebody from Indiana actually realizes how important that is if people from other places realize how important it is and it draws them to it. But I mean, I think also, I mean, if you see Maddie Gladden on a bottle, your first thought is who's Maddie Gladden. Right. And so I think a lot of people at that point, they want to, you know, jump on Google and, type it in and all of a sudden it's a it's a cool story of oh you should hear about you know this maddie gladden person and again it's just it's something it's something cool it's something to draw a connection to you know a community or like whoever i think it's awesome and that's what we want we want complete you know involvement and you know if somebody sits down and reads a story and takes a drink of it and maybe they identify a little bit with whatever you know maddie's thing was back in the day and you know you can jump on spotify every product we have actually has a, a playlist that i've curated that has really? kind of influenced yeah influenced the distillation so you can sit down you can read the story pour a glass and listen to music that inspired it all in one go and and make it an all-encompassing you know thing so basically you just kind of created those crossroads yourself of history and distilling and music basically nobody else hard, is doing it <laughs> the, the hard part for me is like i i feel like i could like you uh grab that maddie gladden and put on that spotify playlist and find myself in trouble because I feel like a yes. playlist is going to be pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, that one is, that one's particularly, um, there's a, there's a lot of new wave stuff on that one, uh, ironically, but, but what I try to do is sort of approach it from like, if you, if she were alive, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would she be playing at the brothel? And I thought, yeah, this kind of, this kind of works kind of dark and broody and, you know, (laughs) like death tones, passenger sort of thing would be more modern, but yeah, that sort of thing. So, okay. Uh, All right. So what are are we going to next? All right. So let's do old Clifty, um, the the apple brandy. So um, that's, uh, and I'll tell you this too. I've not, I've not gotten into brandy either. I'm the worst drinker in the world. (laughs) Well, I will tell you that I'm a firm believer and have been for many years Everybody talks about bourbon and they talk about what's next. Of course, rye is the easiest jump for a bourbon drinker. And then after that, everybody's stuck kind of on the rum thing, right? But the problem is that I don't think that rum is a very easy transition for a bourbon drinker. Now, obviously, nothing is going to replace bourbon, but Mm. you're going to have categories where, you know, if you have a bourbon drinker that buys 12 bottles a year, one bottle a year might be something different than bourbon, Mm. right? Maybe two bottles a year. Yeah. So rum can be good it can be very good and it can be very similar to bourbon if yeah. it's the right rum you know Foursquare in particular uh comes to mind obviously anything richard seal does is is fantastic but i don't think overall it's a very easy transition i think that apple brandy is the easiest transition that's out there i also think that apple brandy has a great american history it was really the first um after rum kind of went out of style, it was really the first American spirit was apple brandy and that we were making it in our own way from our own varieties, et cetera. Uh, so where we're located in Southern Indiana was actually the apple brandy capital of the world 
between 1855 and prohibition there were 155 active apple brandy distilleries in the six county region it was called the black horse of southern indiana um, orange washington lawrence crawford harrison and perry county um, and they were making more apple brandy than northern france at the time and mm. of a considerable higher quality so what they were doing was they weren't making apple brandy in the traditional um, french sort of style they were very much so making a very big, very bold, very heavy spirits. Uh, you can you can almost think of it as kind of like bourbon's older, sexy sister, I guess would be the, the best way to say it. So it's a great way to put it. Right, 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 right. There's, there's, you know, you go hang out with bourbon, but really, you know. You're there for the sister. Yeah, you're there for the sister. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I think that apple brandy has a lot of commonality with bourbon. And I think as you try this, even at a two-year-old apple brandy, mm -hmm. you'll start to notice some of those similarities. But you'll also start to notice past that vanilla, past those baking spices, you start to get almost a little bit of like baked apple pie or fried apples, um, more of those traditional Midwestern sort of dishes. Um, and it's just a, a, a very nice drink to set down and drink neat or to throw into a cocktail or, you know, honestly, one of my favorite ways to drink this, especially in the fall, is to take this and throw it into a mug with some uh, fresh pressed cider and a little mm. sliver of butter and heat it up in the microwave. Really? It is, it is fantastic. And throw a cinnamon stick in there. That is, uh, yeah, it's yeah, delightful. Okay, so excuse my ignorance on this, because like I said, I've not gotten into brandy, but is how this doesn't taste a uh, doesn't taste like it's artificially flavored. Nope. Where does so where does the apple come from? Like how does the apple get in there? So the apple is is distilled in the same way that the grain would be distilled. So what what really? we do is we're basically taking fresh pressed Michigan apple juice, uh, bringing it in, fermenting it at about sixty two degrees, uh, sixty two to sixty seven, depending on where we ferment it at, uh, for about two weeks, and holding on to all the volatility of that apple that we can. Now, it is a little different from traditional Hoosier apple brandy, Black Forest apple brandy, whatever you want to call it, in that we no longer have the orchards here in Indiana with unique apples to sort of supply things. So we're using uh, modern commercial apples, you know, what you'd be able to get at the grocery store. Um, so flavor profile is going to be a little different than what it was back in the day, but we're slowly building orchards back up. But the whole idea of, of making a brandy to me and the same thing with whiskey. It's our, our, the brandy approach is really our approach to everything. It's all about the retention and concentration of flavor. It's the idea of using a pot still because a pot still is a very inefficient tool of a distiller or an alchemist. So you're distilling almost as much water as you are ethanol. And the beautiful thing about that is, is that ethanol carries no flavor or aroma whatsoever. The water is what carries the flavor and the aroma over. So those impurities from the water are really where that flavor is coming across during the distillation. And then it's all about making sure that when you put it in the barrel and you, you put it through the aging regime, through the maturation regime, uh, through a process that in brandy is called elevage, which literally is the same like word that means to raise a child, right, in English, that you hold on to that and you nurture it in such a way that that apple starts to come back to the forefront a little bit. Um, the two-year-old is a little barrel heavy, uh, which is ironic because it's not been in there very long. As no, apple this brandy, is two years. Yep, yep two years. As apple brandy ages a little longer, that apple starts to become more and more forward. So uh, this fall, we'll release our first bottled and bond apple brandy at four years wow. old. Um, and that'll have a lot more of that kind of 
red, delicious sort of apple flavor to it to the forefront, um, as opposed to being kind of even kill with the barrel flavor. It's interesting because I've never, like I said, I've never gotten into brandy. And, and I didn't know like necessarily what to expect because, yeah, you know, it doesn't, um, like I said, it doesn't come off as a, like an artificially apple-y, you know, type, type of a drink, type of a spirit. Because, you know, I think anytime you see something that's apple or a, a fruit flavor, you think of it being sugary and fake, you know, and like nobody yeah, really right. wants that, not, not adults anyway. Um, but well, like, and Brandy has, has got such a, 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 a shit reputation in the U.S. because of that, because it's either it's either artificially flavored and cheap and very sweet mm-hmm. or it's high priced and has no flavor. And there's there's traditionally not been much in between short of Hubert Robin and Austin Collis and some of those guys. But in the Midwest, there's been there's really been nothing short of Copper and Kings until recent years. Uh, that introduces brandy back to people in a way that that is legit and authentic and uh, not artificially flavored and not made for the you know 1920 year old whoever's drinking underage stuff yeah you know whatever that category is uh for better or worse um but i think it has a play you know it's it's a it's a Um, it's a big kid's drink for sure it's not yeah um, it's not the fireball of brandy right right although you can mix it with fireball that's uh that's (laughs) We call that the uh, the Hoosier dumpster fire. That's another St. Louis joke. I I wouldn't be back, allowed back in the house after that, right? Yeah. right? You know the That'd proper the proper yeah the proper way to drink that. There is a proper way to drink that, and what you do is you pour a shot of the apple brandy and you pour a shot of the uh, the fireball, and you actually throw the fireball over your shoulder and shoot the apple <laughs> drink brandy. brandy. It makes perfect yeah. sense. That way you're drinking the good stuff and getting rid of the shit. Yeah, exactly. Yes. All right. So that one, on that. that one is named after a, a distillery that was here in Southern Indiana, just north of Campbellsburg, Indiana, in what's called Cave River Valley. Uh, it wasn't a big distillery. They made about 20,000 gallons a year, roughly, of Hoosier apple brandy, but they were considered the Hoosier apple brandy of the time. So. Interesting. Now, okay, so this says, like, for example, it says aged in used oak barrels. Is that former bourbon barrels that are used to age this, or what's the what's the used oak barrels that's that that it's aged in yeah so so the fun part for us about apple brandy is that even though it's kind of one of our our main pillars the main pillars being bourbon brandy um botanical spirits and american whiskeys mm-hmm. it's not we don't make a ton of it and so we can change it up kind of seasonally so uh the, every batch every year will be a little different as far as cooperage goes so year one was uh, what the winery had used as red wine barrels for a couple of years. Uh, I had those recharred, uh, retoasted, and then put the, uh, the brandy in there. And so there is a little bit of sweet red wine influence going on in there, but mostly number two char, you know, uh, medium plus toast. Um, year two, or the next year, the bottled and bond will be uh, primarily hogshead barrels that were made by uh, Speyside Cooperage. They were actually made by the guy that owns the uh, Guinness Book of World Records for the fastest time putting together a barrel. Um, so those are once used uh, bourbon barrel stays on the side, New American Oak Heads. And then we have a, a one-off we'll put out this summer that's uh, an apple brandy that was actually matured completely in previously used French red wine barrels that then went to Mexico and had tequila in them for a year so you'll get that fresh apple plus that tequila note together interesting so. All right. those are very interesting yes. yeah I'm, I'm starting to see like more 
um, bourbons or, you know, it's a bourbon that's finished in tequila or bourbon finished in um, absinthe barrels or things like that. Is there, are you experimenting with that in terms of like the bourbon, just bourbon itself with, with using some of those other barrels? Yeah, we play with that uh, a little bit for one-offs. We'll, we'll probably never do like a mainline product like sure. that, but like we did the unpretentious, which was the high rye and port. Uh, we just barrel or bottled um, what we call the honey barrel, which was uh, a buckwheat bourbon, which is a very alternative mash bill uh, that we aged for three years in new American oak. And then it went into a previous peerless bourbon barrel that was then a um, hive and barrel meadery mead barrel. Um, it's fantastic. We just did a, a wheat bourbon um, with some French oak mocha staves that I got from Steve Beam uh, wow. that will be in the gift shop here shortly. I think we, we've done a Chardonnay barrel, Lee Sinclair, in the past. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a few a few odd beer barrel finish things going on right now that I'm, I'm not um, not sure what to do with yet, but they're, they <laughs> they're there. They exist. So Okay. All right. At least they're there. Right. All right. Let's go to the let's go to the absinthe now, and I'm interested. Yes. Are we going the so, blue first, or are we going to the yep. uh, Fascination Street? I'd go the blue, and what I would do is sure. I would um, I would do if you've got some water there handy, I would yeah. do three parts water to one part absinthe. Oh. Okay. Uh, and you want that to loose to almost like a milky white color with mm -hmm. just a little clear little stream of absinthe on the top. Go water first, I'm hoping, because I poured it. Uh, you can do it either way, but typically it's absinthe first, then water, but either way, <laughs> you can make it work. Switch. We'll switch glasses. There you go. All right. Okay. All right, so... We got the little cloudiness there. Mm -hmm. It's a little yeah, the, the that licorice, uh, that black licorice is definitely doled down. Yes. Yep. Yeah. The absinthe is not as much uh, licorice forward traditionally as what a lot of people tend to think it is. There's um, there's a, there's a lot of other flavor bridges in there, especially with that one. So the chamomile, in particular, that we do as a vapor distillation, starts to really come to the forefront once you add some water to it, um, and that that tends to be a little more of uh, both a floral and a little bit of an earthy flavor uh, in the loose down thing. Now there are, we do have a lot of, a lot of people who like the absinthe just as a, um, a neat shooter. Mm. <laughs> and for, the, for those people, uh, I tend to think of them as like, let's advertise mm -hmm. this as like Jaeger for pros. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> Adult Jaeger. Right, right. There. Somebody told me one time that, that, that a bottle of our absinthe was a two serving bottle. And I was like, uh, no i guess you got nothing to do the rest of this week so yeah that's incorrect and, or you don't want to remember the week no <laughs> yeah things have been things have been going really poorly and then, it, then yes. it's a two serving bottle no good yep. decisions were made that evening i'm sure so. zero so you're all so would, you always sorry go ahead no nothing i was just gonna yeah no are you always diluting this with water that's typically the way that I drink it. That's the okay. traditional way to do it. Um, I mean, no sugar? Is, I typically don't do sugar, but uh, a lot of people do, and a lot of people prefer it that way. Mm -hmm. um, I like to be able to get more of that sort of herbaceous botanical thing going on uh, with it. Um, 
there are a number of other ways to yeah to, to enjoy that one um so throw that in some root beer and make a highball out of it and it's that's, fantastic that's where i get in trouble yep 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 or uh yeah, you know if you if you want to make a, a dessert thing out of it you do uh you do a root beer float with it and it's really good yeah um, i can that see would that be really good yeah, yeah. the other it's thing like, that's, it's almost like a less syrupy um sambuca yes yeah very similar same family uh, but not but not family. as syrupy right yep um the other thing that you can do with it and of course derby just passed but uh it actually if if you take and you split a mint julep between call it an ounce of bourbon and an ounce of absinthe mm-hmm. it's beautiful it's gorgeous um really? it just it adds so much to that mint julep with that mint flavor and then the bourbon and then having that absinthe come behind that and sort of modify mm-hmm. those flavors uh, I can't believe that that's not a wider spread thing in all honesty. I mean, people love Sazeracs and and that's, yeah. uh, you know, it's another play on that. So that is, this is super interesting because uh, like the Sambuca or, or, or Uzo or something like that, you know, if, especially if it's cold, like a after dinner type thing, you know, it gets that syrupy. Yep. It's, I don't know. It's not, not for me, but this is uh, like, this could be drink at any time. And the root yes. beer thing has got me really interested. Yeah, right. and do it with a uh, uh, do it with one of the more creamy root beers. So like A and W, Barks yeah. is a little too uh, a little too spicy. It's got a little mm-hmm. too much bite, as they say. But like A and W works. Great. That, yeah. yeah, yeah, that, that would, would be good a good one. one. Really good. Throw some ice cream in that. I'm, I might be might be in on that. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I, I could I could be convinced of that one. <laughs> well, <laughs> no it's, doubt. it's, it's it's a funny thing. You get all these people that come through, you know, especially in the Midwest with, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like black licorice. I don't like black licorice. I won't like absinthe. And mm-hmm. then you ask them, do you like root beer? Yeah. Well, there, there's the same flavor compounds are going on in both. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. You know, or uh, in the Midwest, you know, too, Laurelyn, I don't know, your, your, your family made probably Nick's family, I'm sure made uh, like macadamia nut cookies. And right. one of the things they used to do here was use a little bit of anise or anise oil in those macadamia nut cookies. And yeah. so all these people are like, I don't like black licorice. You're like, well, did you ever eat your grandma's macadamia nut cookies? Mm. Yeah, yeah, right. I love those. Well, then you like licorice. You just don't know that you like it yet. You've not experienced it in the right way. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It, it tastes like, I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but my wife's family makes cookies like around Christmas time. And this, it's exactly what it tastes like. Um, God, well, I'm dr- it's going to drive me crazy. They're like flat, like waffly looking cookies. It's, it's exactly what it tastes oh, like. You know what I'm yeah. talking about? I know. Yeah. yeah. Um, those aren't. <laughs> Pitzels. Yeah, I don't know. Pitzels. That's not a peanut butter cookie, is it? No, no, not peanut butter. It's I think it's the anise. But it is, that's exactly what this tastes like. Mm. Well, and the, and the beautiful thing about that is that across cultures, Anise and fennel both and wormwood of all three, and that's kind of the holy trinity of absinthe, mm-hmm. they've all three been used for like digestive issues. And so mm-hmm. you'll see them commonly in teas, you'll see them in cookies, you'll see them in any sort of uh, aperitif or digestif mm-hmm. uh, in general. And so there, there's a wide cultural reference for those particular flavors, just that we've been uh, we've been ruined on it by Mike and Ike's. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> you could definitely go Mike and Ike, that's good. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, think right. I feel like you don't you don't taste as much 
black licorice as you smell it. Yes, yes. totally agree. You know, totally agree. Yeah. Because yeah. when you when you smell even out of the bottle, mm-hmm. obviously with the water didn't didn't uh, it definitely doled it. But you smell straight black licorice on this one. But when right. you put it in the in the water, you definitely smell it. Like it's the overwhelming scent, but mm-hmm. it doesn't taste like black licorice. I get more yeah. of the um, like I said that Pitzels, um, the, yep. like that cookie. Those um, I think it's the anise. Like it's definitely different than what it smells like, uh, or or a very doled down version of what ginger you smell. snap. That could be, yeah, that's work. That works too. Is that the one? I don't know. I don't know, the, but it's it's good. That that's the fun of playing around with those botanical spirits too. Is that you you have an opportunity to build. Um, I, I don't. I'm sure there's a name for this, and I don't know the technical term, but I call them flavor bridges. So, mm-hmm. like this idea that certain flavors modify other flavors in a positive way. Um, and I think the easy example of that is so people have this idea of what cinnamon tastes like, right? Mm-hmm. But say, for example, you eat uh, a cinnamon red hot. What you're actually tasting is cinnamon, Ceylon, and cayenne pepper. And mm-hmm. if you don't have those three things together, you're not tasting cinnamon. Sure. Because it takes those three things to build that up. And you get the same thing with absinthe or gin or any of those botanicals where one botanical plays off of another. And sometimes it happens in ways that you don't expect, positive yeah. or negative. Um, you know, you can... You can lean in a certain direction and get savory and lean a little bit in the other direction and get sweet and uh, lean in the wrong direction and get soap. So. <laughs> I, I think also, like you said, it's like cinnamon's a prime example because you could go with a, um, like a red hot to where, you know, you taste a whiskey. Again, that's like, for me, that's like a fireball, for example. Right. But if that, if, if you equate that with cinnamon, when you actually taste something that's cinnamon, which is a significantly like less sweet and doled down version of yeah. you know, fireball or whatever, like you're not thinking cinnamon. So okay. you're not thinking hot or spice because there's no cayenne in there. Um, so yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah, it we, pr- we also have have this odd thing in the US too, where we, we name the thing, we call things the wrong thing too. So like when you think cinnamon, for example, as, as a, a fun experiment for anybody who's interested in those sort of you know wider palate conversations, so when you think cinnamon, you have this idea of, you know, what you go to the store and you buy a stick cinnamon, right? Mm-hmm. So that is traditional cinnamon as mm-hmm. far as what we know it, but that is not the actual traditional cinnamon that you'll taste in like cinnamon toast crunch. That's actually no. an ingredient called Ceylon. Um, and they're very different from one another. So mm-hmm. that's really interesting. Lot, lot yeah, I, did, I didn't stuff. know that either. Yep. Yep. They look different too. I mean, they're both barks of trees, but they look entirely different from one another and taste different. So interesting. All right. Last one. Got to get to the, uh, the fascination street. This is one of my All favorites. Right. Yeah. This, I, one I, get, this one will get me into trouble too. Okay. <laughs> well, cause this one's the, this is the 120, and I, I imagine like this neat is probably a bit much. Mm. Like, right. Is it, I'm going to have to think well, it's so a little the, bit so more actually, concentrated. The, the blanche that you had is the 120. The, the fascination should be 106. Is yeah, 106. Be. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. The, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Le yeah, Bleu yeah. is 120. Yeah, the one, the, yeah, yeah, the Le Bleu, again, a Jaeger for pros. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Adult Jaeger. So, yes. We're yeah, not, but we're we not need, dropping yeah. it in Red Bull. No. Right. Yeah, well, you, I mean, if that was your thing, I'm not going to judge you. But no, yeah, no, you know. no, not for me. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> yeah, the Fascination Street, I think you'll like because this is, okay. this is where if bourbon and absinthe had a, illegitimate love child this would uh-huh. be the uh, the result of that and the idea here is to bring those those absinthe flavors to you in a 
in a more mellowed out version and also bring those bourbon flavors to you in almost an amplified version again because those flavor bridges are working together so you know the anise is then pushing the vanilla and the the toasted hazelnut and the toasted coconut from the barrel um mm -hmm. The goal with this was to make something that was more of like a, a digestive sort of thing. So you might mm. treat this as almost like an aged sherry or something of that nature, where you're going to have it after a heavy meal and use it, you know, use it to break things down. Okay. Uh, but I, I did intend it. That's why I proofed it down to 106 to be drank as a neat drink, or you can throw it on top of ice if you want to. You can loose it, but that barrel actually ate a lot of the oils from the absinthe, and so it doesn't loose as heavily. Um, it's a lot better just a neat, just sipper. Yeah. And it's even better in uh, root beer. And honestly, with this one, because it's a little more tamed down, you can throw this in something like Barks Root Beer or Sarsaparilla that has a little more spice to it. I, oh, I like this one neat. Mm -hmm. There's definitely the wood in that. That's way, that yes. nose is way different. Yes. Like completely different. Yeah, this is this is one of my favorite things that we've done, and and I like it because it breaks the rules, right? It goes against it goes against everything that traditional absinthe distillers think of as absinthe, and it goes against everything that traditional bourbon distillers think of as bourbon or as American whiskey. Mm. And it's and and that's what we need in the distilled spirits world as far as craft distillers go. People who can where we can push the boundaries, but but still have it be enjoyable, you know. Yeah. Don't be aging in a fish barrel just because you got a fucking fish barrel. You know <laughs> because I mean? you can. Yeah. Right. Just because you can. Yeah. Do stuff that's going to be good that people yeah. will enjoy. So that's a great, that's a great analogy, by the way. Um, okay. So when, when you say, for example, like a new American oak, are you going untoasted, uncharred? So this is, this is actually the same as what we use for our bourbon. So we use a okay. number two char as opposed to a three or four. Okay. Um, little lighter char because we don't the charcoal really doesn't add that much flavor it's mm -hmm. really there's a filtration device for things that you don't want over the years um and then medium plus toast and the reason for the number two char is that number two char underneath the char gives you a medium plus toast down to the red layer of the barrel okay. and that toast is really where you start to get those sugar compounds coming to the forefront so instead of uh, breaking down cellulose, we're really breaking down lignin, and that lignin gives more of like toasted coconut, toasted hazelnut. Um, to me, a little a little rounder, I guess, as opposed to just sweet and just straight up in your face, because there's there's more than enough sweetness in that absinthe or, or really any of our bourbons as a white spirit uh, to pull through that. You know, the barrel is there to accent it more than it is to overrun it. This I get more of that anise black licorice flavor from this one and less on the yes. nose than i do on on the little boot yeah yeah the, the, i agree um, i it's it's different i mean but it's still not it's still not like mike and ike's you know it's not like that right. um it's not that it's not to that like artificial level by any means but there's i get more of that black licorice in this than i do in the little blue but the little blue the nose is way more licorice than than the fascination street yeah yeah i agree yeah the other one that you'll have to try sometime especially if you come by the distillery is uh, uh the right way which is we took the uh the fascination street barrel and aged a um i think it was a three-year-old rye whiskey in it for about nine months hmm. and uh so it's just like a sazerac ready to go interesting this, this is very interesting what's weird is once you said root beer it's like that line between black licorice and root beer is really blurred. Like it's that's a, it's real a, quick. 
really yeah. quick. Cause I was, yeah. as I was saying it, Laurel, Laurel like, yeah, it smells like, you know, I get more, more of that black licorice. And I'm like, like, is that black licorice or is it root beer? <laughs> like, I, can't, I can't really tell. Well, that's, that's another interesting flavor compound too. So everybody, you know, you, we go with the black licorice thing because that's what people know. That's what the candy's called, et cetera. Uh, but the black licorice is that anise and that fennel. Like mm -hmm. if you actually take a piece of licorice root and you and you chew on it, it's just mm -hmm. saccharine. That that mm -hmm. licorice flavor does not exist in licorice, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really good, and I can see this one definitely being different, neat, uh, mm -hmm. versus the Le Bleu. This is mm -hmm. awesome. Yes. Well, right. I, I feel like that one, the the flavors, the the licorice is kind of or what we're calling licorice yeah. is kind of sandwiched between the whiskey. So yeah. for me, when I, it, it's like, I get hit with the licorice and then the whiskey and then the licorice again at the end. Yeah. Yeah, and, for sure. Yeah. Like right up, right up front, you get hit with it, but it's, it's a little bit less and then it's whiskey. Mm -hmm. And then the end, I think it finishes more licorice than like the initial, the initial flavor of it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's I there. So. It's weird. It's it's so weird though, because like you just don't get that as much on the nose, right? And especially like second and third sip, mm -hmm. um, you get a little get a little bit more of that on the end. I definitely saved a little bit of each one of these, so I didn't go uh, <laughs> I didn't go full sample because I think that would be uh, excessive. But <laughs> yeah, it's quite good. Especially if you have to work tomorrow. Uh, not I don't have to get up till five thirty, so we'll be fine. We can sleep oh. in an hour. <laughs> All fun, right. fun, fun Monday, sad Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, you guys, I, I honestly, thank you so much. This is awesome. And I really appreciate, I mean, the information, the knowledge about it is just so cool. And I think anybody who, you know, listens to this is going to find it so interesting. Um, you know, like, like the, between the names of the drinks and then just hearing how much detail goes into it and the knowledge behind it is, uh, is awesome. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us, and, and yeah. come by sometime for sure. I would love to. I, I think I told Laurel and before you got before you jumped on here, my most of my family's out in Indiana, and so oh, nice. but they're up near uh, near Indianapolis. But that'd be worth yeah. a trip down south a little ways. Yeah, yeah we're only sure. we're only two hours south of Indy, so oh nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Social media. Where's where's a good place for people to find you on social media? So uh, spirits. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so spirits of uh, uh, and then sillbox.com uh, okay. for all of our products. And, and I believe spirithub.com also does some shipping of our products. And then nice. you can find me on Instagram and social media. Uh, just search Alan Bishop. It's either going to be myself, a rock star and or a rocket scientist. And I'm by far the least successful of the three. Uh, <laughs> and then alchemistcabinet.com. Okay. All right. Yeah. Awesome. I'm going to, uh, we'll have to check that seal box because there's a couple of these I might have to get sent out here because these are delicious. So definitely awesome. Awesome. You guys, thank you so much. We really yeah. appreciate it. This was great. Yeah. Thanks yeah, for thank having you. us. Definitely. Talk to you guys soon. Take care. All right. Yeah, have a good, have a good night. All right. Thanks.